You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. We all turn your attention to God's Word in Mark 4, 35 through verse 40. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not hear that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? We have been uh, working our way through a, a bit of a topical series of how people change. Kind of trying to answer that question, how do people change? And the Bible has a technical word for this. The word is sanctification. And that word we've been saying basically means it's the lifelong process whereby God graciously transforms you into the person that you were created to be. And tonight I wanted to emphasize the lifelong part of that definition because sanctification is a long, slow, lifelong sort of thing. Hey, bro. And um, let's see how many of those happen tonight. That's one. We can keep a tally. And um, uh, there, there are no shortcuts in the Christian life towards changing. And Well, actually, that's not true. There are, there, there are two shortcuts. If you want to be sanctified quicker, if you want to grow and change in the person you were created to be quicker, there are two shortcuts you can take. But once you hear what they are, you don't want to take them. I heard this from another pastor. He said the two shortcuts to sanctification are humiliation and suffering. And so I thought that was interesting. I want to explore the shortcut of suffering tonight. How might suffering be a shortcut of sanctifying you. And so here's how I want to talk about this from this story. I want to talk about it really under two headings, how you can understand your suffering and how you can use your suffering. How you can understand it and how you can use it. So let's start with how you can understand it. And what I really want to do under this point is just kind of blitz, blast through the story that Caroline just read for us. The story begins, kind of the context is Jesus is with his 12 disciples and he has been preaching all day out in the open all day long. And so as you can see in verse 35, it tells you that it's evening time and Jesus is exhausted. He says, let's get in the boat. Let's go to the other side of the lake. And so that's what they do. And as they are in the boat going to the other side of the lake, Jesus just kind of passes out. He's so exhausted, just kind of crashes on one of the cushions that are in the boat. And it says in verse 37 that there's a great windstorm that arose. And I always love to get geeky and Greeky when I can. In, in, in the Greek, the word great, when it gets translated great, the Greek word that gets translated great is the word mega, which is kind of cool. But it's saying there's this mega thunderstorm that comes up. It is this 
hurricane force wind and the boat is going up and down in the waves and the waves are crashing into the side of the boat and these are trained fishermen but they're freaking out and they're trying to bail out the water as fast as they can and they're things just got real and so it says in verse 38 they wake up jesus they shake him and they say do you not care that we are perishing and i think that is an amazingly honest and natural question don't you care that we are perishing I think one thing that suffering does when your life really does feel like you are drowning and you cannot bail the water out fast enough, when you feel like you are drowning, you are overwhelmed and you are going down, suffering so often makes us question God. Don't you care? How could you allow this to happen? If you are real, if you, are, if you even exist, how could, this, how could you care about my life and let this thing happen? I would put money on it that everybody out here tonight has at some, in some way or another asked that question or felt that question. Why, God? Why would you let this happen? How, do you not care about my life? If you're even there, if you even exist, what suffering does is it makes you, and so often, it makes you question God. It makes you doubt God. It makes you accuse God for either being malicious or just completely indifferent to your life. And that's what they're experiencing. They experience suffering. Their life is in turmoil. And even if you think about just like the optics of this moment is not good for Jesus. They are, their life is in danger and Jesus is literally doing, he's doing nothing. He's he's literally sleeping on the job. He's completely silent. And they're like, don't you care? Where are you? What are you doing? So they ask him that question. They raise him up from his, his, his sleep. And it says that he, um, in verse 39, it says that he gets up and rebukes the wind. I thought maybe I could try it. That was probably really blasphemous. Never mind. Um, <laughs> he stands up and he looks at the wind and he's just like, shut up, stop. And it stops. It kind of stopped. Wow, things just got real here at RUF. No, so the wind stops, which could have been just like a freak coincidence, right? Because right, it comes back. But the water would have been choppy and up and down for like hours afterward with that level of a, of a storm. And so he looks at the water next and he says, peace, be still. And it says there, it was, there was a great calm. This water that was turbulent and hurricane and crazy and life-threatening, is now glass. And this is the second time that word mega shows up in this story. Now there was a great calm, eerily quiet. And into this silence, Jesus speaks in verse 40, and he says, why are you so afraid? Uh, Have you still no faith? And I I made a mistake. Verse 41 is supposed to be included in the handout. I only told Catherine to print through verse 40. So verse 41 If you have it, or you can look it up later, I'll tell you what it says. But after this moment, in verse 41, it says that the disciples were filled with a great fear. And that's the third time that this word mega shows up, which is really fascinating. If you look at how the story is written, here is this crazy storm, and they are afraid. And then Jesus calms it, silence, glass. And then after the fact, it says they were, they had great fear. They were more afraid in the stillness than they were in the middle of the storm. Wow. 
why. Here's why I think. Because I think that they realize now, for the first time, they are in the presence of God. Previously, they thought that they were in control of their life, and now they begin to realize they are not. I am not in control of my life. He is. In fact, in verse 41, if you look it up later, they say to each other, who even is this? The wind and the waves obey him. If he can control the wind and the waves, he can control every molecule and every millisecond of human history. And that means that they realize they are in the presence of something much bigger than themselves. And that, I think, is the point. That, I think, is the reason why Jesus allowed them to go through this experience. Because what suffering does is it wakes you up to the reality that you are not in control of your life, but that he is. I mean, if you think about it, before they got into that boat, their whole life was set on serving themselves. I mean, they were not evil, mean, malicious people, but their whole life was dominated by what I have and what I do and what people think of me. And they thought when it comes to my life, I got this. And God kind of exists as a handyman that can show up and kind of lend a helping hand to help tweak and fix my life every now and then when I need some help. But this is the script of my life and God exists to make my dreams come true. And when I don't get the script written the way that I want it to be written, they get angry. They get angry at Jesus and they accuse him and they question him. And my guess is there's a lot of us here tonight that have that kind of same mentality. I'm here at UT to get a degree or to get a spouse and to get out and get a job so that I can get money so that my kind of dream life can come true. And I'll kind of throw a bone to God every now and then to keep him around as like a good luck charm so that he helps me have the perfect life that I want. And if he doesn't have the if he doesn't write the perfect life for me, then I will get angry with him and walk away and accuse him of not existing. But they go into this storm and they come out the other side of it and they experience and encounter the the immensity of God, the sovereignty of God. They realize they're not in control of their life. He is. They realize they are living in his universe not the other way around. They thought that Jesus was a supporting actor in a story that was all about them, and now their eyes are opened up to realizing we're the supporting actors in a story that's all about Jesus. In other words, what is happening in this story is that the disciples are becoming less, and God is becoming bigger, and that is the essence of sanctification. In their hearts, they are rightly getting sized up. They are becoming less, and God is becoming bigger. And so here's how you can begin to understand your suffering. Suffering is not God screwing you and making your life miserable. Suffering is is God wanting to give you more of himself. God allows suffering to happen in your life because he wants you to be driven just like a nail into his heart. One one of my uh, favorite stand-up comedians is Jim Gaffigan. And he has five children, and he used to live live in a single-room apartment in New York City with him and his wife and five children. And here's what he says in one of his um, stand-up specials. He says this, Quote, 
Some people think it's for religious reasons. Like, you know, you have all these kids for religious reasons, but that's not how it works. If anything, you have four or five kids, and then you become religious. Because once you lose a kid at the mall, atheist or not, you start talking to God right away. Uh, hey, God, I, I know I haven't talked to you in a while, probably since finals in high school. Uh, anyway, if you can help me find my son, I promise I'll change my life. I'll stop going to Wendy's. Oh, there he is. Never mind, God. Well, we're off to Wendy's. Talk to you when I get cancer. End quote. Now, that's pretty dark. I mean, it's funny when he does it, but it's pretty dark. But what I think is so fascinating about that little bit is he's, he is being brutally honest, and he's putting his finger on, on this almost universal impulse that when we are scared and when the wheels are falling off and when we are suffering, we are praying to God even if we don't consider ourselves religious. And when things are going really well, we found our son, we have no more need of God, and we just kind of discard him until we need him again. In fact, some of you might remember this Regina Spector song that she wrote a number of years ago. And she has this line where she goes, no one laughs, uh, no one laughs at God at a hospital. No one laughs at God in a war. But then the chorus goes, but God can be funny at a cocktail party. And it's kind of that same idea that like when you're in combat, when you're in the, the foxhole and bullets are flying over your head, or when you're in the ER, the concept of God is not funny. In fact, you are desperately crying out to him and needing him. But like when people are at a cocktail party and everything's going great and like you have no worries, like it's easy to even joke. Like God is just kind of irrelevant. God's kind of like the idea of God can be kind of ridiculous. When things are going well, he's irrelevant. When things are falling apart, you need him. And so if that's almost a universal impulse, then here's how you can understand suffering. God allows suffering to happen to your life because he's using it to draw you to him. To invite you to be driven into the very thing that you need. Because the reality is, we so often don't realize that God is what we need until God is the only thing that we have. So you can begin to understand your suffering even as a gift. I mean, it's a painful gift. Nobody would ever ask for this gift. But if it drives you to the very thing where you can find life, then you can begin to understand your suffering in a different way. Charles Spurgeon, who was a um, 19th century Baptist preacher, said this famously, this famous quote. He says, I have learned to kiss the wave that crashes me against the rock of ages. If you think about that quote, that's pretty crazy. I have learned to embrace and kiss the very thing that smashes me against Jesus. I mean, it, just to be honest about my own story for a second, this is very true of my story. I did not grow up in a Christian con. I mean, I grew up in a Christian context, but I myself wasn't a Christian until high school. My sophomore year of high school um, was was a extremely hard year for me. Year for me, I was not a believer. We, we, our, our family dog had just died, which kind of sounds trivial saying it out loud now, but I just remember at the time it was like really emotional. I didn't know how to connect with people in high school. I didn't know how to connect with my friends. I didn't, know, I didn't feel comfortable in my skin. If you were here last week, you remember the fingernails and the, and the earrings and toe rings and whatnot. But I was, I was lonely. I was depressed. I was suicidal. I remember... Uh, all, everybody you know, would go out on the weekends and go do stuff on Friday and Saturday night and I would stay home in my room alone like writing depressing songs by myself and I remember having this conversation with my mom on the couch 
about God. And I remember saying to her, I don't understand how educated people can believe in something that they can't see. It just feels like a fairy tale. It feels like superstition. It just feels stupid. And I was invited that summer to go with a youth group that I was not a part of to go down for a week at the beach for this little beach week thing. And it was at the height of my depression, the height of my loneliness, and I went down there and I heard really for the first time about this person, Jesus, and his grace and his mercy and his love for hurting and lonely and outcast people. And it's like the lights clicked on for me. I felt drawn to Jesus and that was the moment, that really was the moment that my life changed where Jesus saved me by his grace. But it was because the, the context of that, the soil of that was my depression, my loneliness, my angst. And I would have never have written the story like that. It was way too painful. But it was, it was my pain that was, that was the thing that God used to drive me into his heart. And I've talked with enough of you to know that this is many of y'all's stories as well, where you have been just wounded and broken by life. And because you were wounded, that was the thing that drew you into the arms of the great physician. So you can begin to understand suffering almost as a gift. And I know that 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 doesn't answer all of your questions by any means. In fact, that probably raises a million more questions. But God uses our suffering, God uses our pain to amplify himself, for him to become a bigger reality in in our life and for us to become less. He uses it to sanctify us. That's how you can understand your suffering. So here's the question. How can you use your suffering? How can you use your pain and suffering that actually leads to deeper connection with God, deeper wholeness, deeper fullness? Because as you know, suffering does not just automatically produce this. I mean, we we have these phrases in our culture, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. That's not automatically true. What doesn't kill you might make you an angry and jaded and cynical person. I mean, suffering is going to change you one way or the other, for better or for worse. How can you use your suffering in such a way that it leads to your growth and to your sanctification? This is the last thing I want to look at with you tonight. And and I want to look at this. I want to give three suggestions of how you can use your pain, how you can use your suffering. Here's the first one. First way that you can use your suffering is to be honest. Be honest. So often, that's a shame. (laughs) Is that the first time that that has happened tonight? Normally when we do RUF on the lawn, I can just see everybody looking that way and snickering. Okay, we can keep a tally on that too. Be honest about how embarrassing and hard suffering can be. What I mean is, so often... If you're anything like me, when hard things happen, when the wheels begin to fall off of your life, your instinct is to deny it, to stuff it, to smile, to not tell anybody, and just keep moving through life as if it's not happening. We suddenly just kind of become stoics and pretend like, it's not that big of a deal, I got this, and we stuff it down. Or the other way that we deal with it is that we numb ourselves. We escape. So just more Netflix, more Instagram, more studying, more alcohol, more sex, more porn, more Fortnite, more shopping, more cleaning, more ice cream, more Coke, more drugs, more whatever. 
I just need to numb and escape. But the Bible never invites you to respond to your pain in these ways. In fact, if, you, if, you've, if you've ever read through the Psalms, the Psalms are unbelievably brutally honest about the pain that these people are experiencing. In fact, sometimes you read things that they write in the Bible about their situation, and you think, are they allowed to say that? Can they? That's, I mean, that's in the Bible. I guess they can. But let me give you an example. Listen how raw and honest this, the, the author of Psalm 13 is. He says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? When people in the Bible experience hard things, they do not put on a smile and pretend like it doesn't exist and just in a happy, fake, cheery voice say, God's got this. They are honest about how hard and heartbreaking it is. And here's why they can be honest. Let me give you just a quick little movie clip. In the, in the movie Selma, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., um, approaches this grandfather who has just experienced uh, this boy that has been tragically murdered. So uh, MLK goes to this grandfather and is at the morgue. And he goes to him and he says this, There are no words. But I can tell you one thing for certain, God was the first to cry for your boy. God was the first one to cry over your pain and your suffering. And that is so right. That is such a good line from that movie. Recognizing God is the, God is the one that sheds the first tear. The shortest verse in the English Bible is Jesus wept. The reason why you can be honest about your pain and suffering is because God is honest about your pain and suffering. Jesus weeps with you. He hurts with you. He, under, he, he gets it. He gets it because he experienced it. And if you know that, that he is near and he is shedding the first tears over this horrible thing that's happening in my life, that will free you to be honest. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to glaze over it with kind of a fake spiritual glaze. You can be honest. This is hard, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. means that you also have to be sorrowful. So be honest. That's number one. Number two, be theological. You say, be theological? Yeah, be theological. And here's what I mean by that. When most people go through suffering, hard things, their knee-jerk reaction is to ask why. Why is this happening? Why would God allow this? Why me? Why now? Why, why, why? And most religious people answer that why question this way. I've done something wrong, and this is God's way of kind of paying me back. God is punishing me. He's bringing something bad into my life, or he's withholding something good from me because I've, I don't have enough faith, or I've, I've been screwing up in some way. This is his way to pay me back. And this is why a lot of religious people, when bad things happen in their life, they suddenly start turning up the volume and turning up the intensity on their religious activity. i got to read the Bible more. i got to get more serious about my faith. I can fix this. i got to balance the scales. And that is so, so incorrect theologically that if you believe that and if you live like that, you will bring more pain and more devastation into your life. 
let me explain why with a, an illustration I've used before, which is really a horrible one because it begins with you imagining thought experiment. Imagine that you do something really bad. Let's say that let's say you kill somebody. Horrible way to begin a thought ex- experiment, but here we go. You kill somebody and uh, you get arrested for it. And you, you get brought before a trial, and the, the trial, the, you are obviously guilty. They have surveillance footage, they have DNA, they have fibers, they have footprints, they have fingerprints, they have eyewitnesses. You were obviously guilty. So the judge looks at all the evidence, bangs the gavel, you're guilty, bye-bye, you're going to jail. So you go behind bars and say you, you do your time, and after 10 years, you get released from prison. And you get in your car and you drive home. And on your way home, before you even get home, after serving your time, your 10 long years in the joint, and before you get home, you get pulled over by a police officer because they recognize you and they say, oh my goodness, you're that murderer. You're that murderer that murdered that person 10 years ago. And they put the handcuffs on you and you're saying, no, 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 it's a big, you know, you don't understand. And they go through the process, and you get brought before the judge again. The judge looks at all the evidence, and sure enough, it's still there. There's the surveillance footage. There's the DNA. There's all the evidence. You're obviously guilty. Bang, off to prison you go. You would be in uproar. The whole world would be in uproar because that's unjust. It's the law of double jeopardy. You can't pay for the same crime twice. It's unjust. You've already done your time. It's paid for. When you look at Jesus on the cross dying for your sins and taking your place, you are seeing justice served for your crimes. That means it is a cosmic impossibility for God to punish you for your sins if you are in Christ. Your sins have already been punished. They've already been paid for. It would be unjust. It would be the law of double jeopardy. God cannot hold you responsible for your crimes that they've already been paid for by somebody else. And what that means is, if you are theological in the way that you go through your suffering, you can, you can go through suffering with incredible stability. Because you know deep down in your heart of hearts, this is not God punishing me. This is not God paying me back. I may not know what the specific reason is for why God is allowing this to happen, but I can certainly know what the reason is not. It is not because he's punishing me. It is not because he doesn't love me. Because look at the cross. Be honest about your pain. Be theological about your pain. And here's the last one. Be faithful. Be honest, be theological, and be faithful. And here's what I mean by that. If you consider yourself a Christian tonight, and I don't assume that everybody does, but if you are one of the people here tonight that consider yourselves a Christian, how would you know if you are serving God for his sake or for what you're getting out of it? Have you ever ever thought about that question? That's a question. Because here we are in Knoxville, and there's an enormous Christian population here. Which, which is a great thing, but it, it just means that the, the danger of being a Christian here is that there's, there, there's social acceptance for you to follow Jesus. It's, it's not an embarrassing thing to be a Christian in Knoxville, Tennessee, yet. But for now, there's, there's, there's benefits. There's social acceptance. People think you're cool. Uh, you, you, you post a picture of the Bible, you get like a million likes. It's a, it's a cool thing to be a Christian in Knoxville, which means 
we all have to wrestle with the question, am I serving God for his sake or for mine? Am I really serving him for him or for all the benefits that I get out of it? How would you know? There's no way to know unless you experience suffering. The only way to know whether or not you are serving God for his sake or because you're getting something out of it is to go through life when you serve God and you don't get anything out of it. When you, when you go through a point in your life when you're saying, Jesus, I, I love you, I'm obeying you, I'm following you, I'm, so, I'm, di- I'm denying myself for you, and my life is falling apart. Th- th- this is not helpful to me. Are you willing at that point in your life to say, and yet I still will follow you? That's what I mean by being faithful. Serving him, ob- obeying him, believing him unconditionally when you get nothing out of it because you have him and that's enough. I want to end with this. In the year 1871, some of you might know there was this this giant fire in Chicago. It's going to be called the Great Chicago Fire and um, uh, aptly named for the Great Fire in Chicago. And there was this man named Horatio Spafford that almost, his whole livelihood was almost virtually taken from him in this fire. That was, that was the biggest, hardest thing he'd ever gone through up to that point in his life. And two years later, 1873, he puts his wife and his four daughters in a boat to sail across the ocean to go to England. And once they're in this journey, their ship collides with another boat and it instantly sinks. And all four of his daughters drown. His wife makes it out alive barely. She gets to the other side, and he has heard about this incident, and she sends this telegram to him that lets him know that she is alive, but that she is alone. So he boards a boat to cross the ocean to go be with his grieving wife, and when he crosses the part of the ocean where the accident happened where the bodies of his four daughters are at the bottom of the ocean floor beneath him. He pulls out a piece of paper and a pen, and he writes a song. Actually, it's a song that we're going to sing tonight as we finish. It's called It Is Well. In the first verse of that song, he is so unbelievably honest. He says, when sorrows like sea billows roll, when, when, when my sorrows are like the waves of the sea just billowing, rolling over me, crashing over me over and over, sorrow after sorrow after sorrow after sorrow, he writes this, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. He's saying, whatever happens in my life, good or ill, I have learned to say it it is well. It will be well. Now, how can he say that? How can he experience what he just went through and write those words? Well, he shows you in the second verse. In the second verse, he looks at Jesus and he says, He, Christ, has regarded my helpless estate and he has shed his own blood for my soul. He fixes his gaze on Jesus and he says, I know that God loves me because of the cross. And if God was willing to give his son for me, I can trust him. I don't know why he allowed this to happen. I don't know why he has brought this pain and suffering into my life. But one thing I can know for certain It's not because he doesn't love me. And then in the last verse, 
he talks about Christ's return, Jesus descending, coming back with the, the trumpets blazing and the trumpets blasting, and Jesus coming back to make all things that are sad untrue. That one day Jesus will come and raise my daughters to new life. And he will make all things new and he will fix and repair everything that is broken. Here you have a story, a real historical story of someone that has gone through excruciating pain and suffering and loss. And they're honest about it. They're theological about it. And they're faithful. And so I I don't claim to know the depth or the extent of what you have gone through and what you have experienced and what sort of pain and burdens and baggage you carry around in your being right here tonight. I want to invite you to do something with your pain, though. I want to invite you to be honest about it. And I want to invite you to be theological about it. And I want you to be I want to invite you to be faithful with it as well. May God be kind to use all the pain and all the suffering in our life to sanctify us into being the kind of people he wants us to be. Amen. Let me pray. Father, um, many of us tonight do carry around so much in our hearts that many of us here tonight have hearts that are broken, that hearts that are heavy, as we see and we just experience a world that is just scarred with devastation and disease and death and careless, needless loss. Father, I pray that you would help us to be people that are sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, having both of those realities in our being because we know the great love that you have for us and we trust you with it. Commit all these people here tonight to you and to your care, knowing that you love them and that you're for them and that you're with them. We pray all this in Jesus' name.